Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. It's great to have all of you tune us in and turn us on. And, you know, I want to thank all of you for doing that. And as I promised, we are getting ready to announce our like really cool new app. Uh, We're waiting, according to Jessica, what we're waiting for, we have the Android version. And what we're doing today is we're registering the Apple version. So we didn't want to give favorites to the the Android people without the Apple people. So we have the Androids and the Apples, and we're going to get all of that like like together. We're going to make an announcement, and you're going to have some fun with the new app. Of course, I have it on my phone. If you are watching us on Facebook Live, you are watching me uh, navigating on my phone and trying to show you, but the screen is so small that you are like, seriously, uh, we can't see what you're doing, Pat. So I promise not to do any of that today. Um, One of the things that if you've been following the Dr. Pat show that this is, or following my new show, Power Up Radio with Dr. Pat, you know that what we've done is we've taken on a couple of conversations. Uh, One in particular had to do with the blanket statement that has been made across the board in reference to the mass shootings, the mass murders. And um, for those of us that have spent a little time in the field of psychology, um, making a blanket statement about somebody and then a series of people uh, without really looking at that and confusing the public with what is mental health and what is not, uh, it warrants a bigger conversation. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been bringing the conversation to you. You know, today, uh, Dr. John Uber is joining me here today. And he is somebody that knows a bit about what we're getting ready to talk about today because he is somebody that has set into motion mainstream mental health. And what I mean about that is if you go to mainstreammentalhealth.org, you'll see exactly what we're talking about. You're going to hear from him what that means. You know, today we're going to talk about like what is, what is the status of our beliefs? What is it about us that we know or don't know? And most importantly, why in the latest international survey that was done on anxiety Did the United States float to the top? So today, thanks to Dr. John Uber, chairman of Four Mainstream Mental Health. It's a nonprofit organization. It brings lasting and positive change. But more importantly, it is going to bring you information. It's going to really bring to you, right, ideas, professionals. It's going to bring to you 
these things which you can count on. It's called information. It's information that you can absolutely understand and know comes from reliable places. So today, we are taking this on as we think about how mental health warrants could be legal, sensible, effective means of preventing future mass murders. We're going to talk about that. But that is a bigger conversation than just that sentence. Dr. Huber, great to have you here. Well, Dr. Pat, thank you for having me on your show. So uh, since um, the blanket statement that came out about mental health versus mental illness. Um, I've done a series of shows based on our listeners wanting us to explain it to folks and what it all means. And most importantly, to really take on the conversation is hate a mental illness. And of course, I wish it was so simple, right? Right. I wish that there was like the magic wand about that to answer (laughs) it, but it's not. It's not. It is so varied and so complex. And what we've started doing at Mainstream Mental Health is we talk about it like we talk about a medical illness. We talk about our physical health. That means whether you're sick or you're in top performance. What is your physical health? So we're talking about it in general uh, across the board. And maybe maybe your mental health has, has some problems and you have some sickness there or, or something going on. And uh, maybe it's something as simple as some kind of mental hygiene. You just need to kind of clean up your act a little bit. But all of it plays a part in how we interact with every other human being out there. So what I'm trying to do is destigmatize this whole concept of mental health. And I look at it like childhood cancer. Back in the early 80s, we had about a 15% survival rate across the board for all childhood cancers. We didn't know what was going on. What were the prodromal things? In other words, what were the signs that were saying, hey, your child may be moving toward uh, this disease called cancer? And we're afraid to talk about mental health. And the reality of it is, I think a large majority of mental illnesses, if we really knew what the prodromal behaviors and signs and symptoms, we could interfere with that and keep somebody from maybe having their first psychiatric break. And we could stop them and and have them live a managed life without having to ever, say, have their first bipolar episode. And, you know, we need to just talk about mental health. Right right now in the the, uh, 2010s, we have an 85% survival rate for childhood cancer because we know all those things about cancer now. But it Mm -hmm. took us 40 years to do it. Mm -hmm. Do you think... Do you think, Dr. Huber, do you think, and and I'm just taking a snapshot on where we are today right now, uh, because we're living in the world of rhetoric rules, and I'm not just, (laughs) uh, seriously, did I just say that? I can't even believe I said that. That, Now, that's going to be my new podcast name. Um, So, (laughs) I'm not kidding. Um, But... It's one thing to be spewing rhetoric around certain issues in society, which have, let's call it, marginal consequences. But when we're talking about something like mental health, mental illness, the degree by which people in our country are suffering from it, um, boy, I think that we cross a line 
that not only fuels the rhetoric but confuses the public. And I'd like to get your point on that. Absolutely, absolutely. And what what we have to look at, too, are, are definitions. I mean, you know, you mentioned earlier the mass shootings and things like that, and I know that's eventually where we're going to go, but if you look yeah. at the, um, the, the GVA, the Gun Violence Archive, they've created their own definition for it, yet the FBI has had a definition since the 30s and 40s. And if we're going to compare apples and apples, we need to stay with that model. What we see is we really haven't had that much of an increase, per se, of these mass shootings. The problem is we've got also a new news media out there. You know, just 20 years ago, everybody who read the newspaper, they had a subscription, and they paid that, and it didn't really matter what the headlines were. The advertisers would know that so many people were going to see their, their, their advertisement on the show or on their pages, and that was it. Today, clicks rule. They have to, that, that website now that it used to be your newspaper, now has to get you to click on it, and they sell advertising based on the click. So for them to stay functioning and alive, they have to use the most dramatic, heart-wrenching, gut-pounding leads so that you click on it, and it may not have, not have anything to do with actually what's in the story down below. But they get that click through, and they get their their half a cent from each one of the advertisers on that page. So they love to tell you new things like this is the worst epidemic ever. Yet, you know, last year we had 30 mass shootings according to the FBI. Today we're only at 19. Uh, so we still have a ways to go. And then they start yelling about mental health things. Well, of the definitions used by yeah. the FBI since 2000. We know 62% of those shooters, now we're talking 30 shooters a year on average, 62% of them had a diagnosis. Now, some were getting treatment, some had refused treatment, some were had just recently stopped medication or stopped therapy. There's a whole variation. Then we know the other 38% had symptoms, but they never saw a mental health professional. So we don't know if they really had it or if they just had a symptom. Because having one symptom isn't necessarily conducive to the whole diagnostic criteria and all that kind of stuff. So they push mental health is the problem, but then they turn around and they don't like to do that because they get more responses now by going after the whole assault weapon ban. You know, you got so many Americans who believe in the Second Amendment, so many Americans who don't believe in the Second Amendment, they get clicks on both parties for that one. And they love doing it. But there's no definition for an assault rifle. Basically, what it looks like to me is any scary-looking gun meets the criteria. And then we can look at the actual numbers, regardless of mass shootings or not, of gun deaths we have in this country every year from gun deaths. I mean, nice, pretty-looking deer rifles all the way to the scary assault weapons. And we see we have about 425 of those, yet we had three times the amount of people killed by baseball bats and hammers that same year in 2017. So so is it really because it looks bad? And on top of that, we have 47,000 gun deaths in 2017. We're talking about less than 500. So we're talking about one-tenth of one percent of all the guns were, were long guns that were used in homicides. The rest of them were all pistols. And we're not addressing that at all. We're just going after the others because they're scary looking. Yeah. And they can get your emotions going. 
And it's those click-throughs that are driving this whole thing. That's really what it is, because it's not rational thought. Mm. But I, I don't think we're we're at the place where we can have a rational conversation. And the reason I say that okay. is because where we are, uh, and, and so I say that and then I'm going to say something else. Because where <laughs> we are is we are in the world of life by soundbite. Yes, ma'am. That's where we are. Life by soundbite. Absolutely. Life Click by soundbite. Through, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, click through life by sound, sound good. Okay, so let's look at what you're saying because look, I'm I'm a kid from New York. I know what it's like to live every day in fear. Most yeah. of us that grew up in the streets of New York, we know you don't go down those dark, very narrow <laughs> street things, even if it is a shortcut, right, in New York yep. City. You just don't go down there, right? But if you're a tourist, you don't think you're like, oh, that looks like a shortcut. Let me go down that That's street. That's a target right, right there. <laughs> Let me just go. Let me go down that street because you know what? I don't want to walk around a full city block to get to where I want to go. But see, it's just have... a block. Come on, people. <laughs> <laughs> I love New York. I'm a fan, so. Uh, I, I am too, but I got to say this for all of you, you should have been listening to my last show because we went off on, you know, whoever that guy was that created stilettos. We're saying that there's no place in New York for those. I, I okay. get those up after high school. That was enough. Oh for me. my yeah. God. <laughs> I, I, okay. But I think I still have a picture of you. Um, oh, don't spread that around. I oh, thought my no, wife was I'm the not. only one who had those. Uh, uh, but look, this is what I mean by the soundbite thing. We went from the conversation and the devastation of mm -hmm. what happened in El Paso. So we went from that to this other world, right? Then, then Ohio, uh, and then one story after the other, because it's going to continue. Yeah. And we went from a written document where somebody laid out their entire game plan for what they wanted to do and why they wanted to do it. So in yeah. a court of law, right, Dr. Huber, let's talk about this in a court of law. So you go into court and they ask you, was Bobby Joe of sound mind? Did Bobby Joe know that Bobby Joe was doing something wrong? And Bobby Joe and everybody says, yes, Bobby Joe did know that. And so then they say, oh, this mental health defense is out the window. It's gone. Well, well, not necessarily. There you go. That's now, why I'm bringing I, it up. I, I, I'm not an attorney. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, a forensic psychologist. And what I typically get is, first thing is a competency. Is this person competent to stand trial? We haven't even addressed what happened at the crime. Okay. Is this person competent to stand trial? Because if a person is not competent to stand trial, they cannot plead mentally insa mental insanity. You have to be competent in order to plead mental insanity as a defense. And that's kind of a weird concept to understand, but it's essential. It has to be in place. Because competency means today, at the time of trial, this person understands the general policies and rules we have in our judicial system. They understand that the judge and the jury are the decision makers. They are the triers of 
fact. They also need to know that their attorney is their defense attorney, and the opposing attorney is the prosecuting attorney. They can both be paid for by the state, or they can be independently paid for, and that his attorney is actually there to help him. And the other attorneys want nothing but to see that person convicted. Then all the way down to a bailiff. What is a bailiff's job? That is about competency. They have the wherewithal to understand, Mm -hmm. and they know that when the judge walks in, court order is everybody stands up. That's the appropriate decorum. And then when the judge allows us to sit down, we sit down. And we're quiet during the court proceedings. You don't want to start yelling and screaming and things like that in the middle of the court proceedings. Unless maybe you have the stage, because there are times on the witness stand that they want to hear what you have to say, even if it is very emotional and emotionally laden material. So that's the first thing we have to do. Once we've established that they are competent to stand trial, then the difficult part comes kind of like what we talk about uh, with a, a psychological autopsy. We found somebody who was shot to death doing a crime, and they want to know, was this person really just incompetent or, you know, you know, misread the situation and got killed, or was this an intentional way to commit suicide so they didn't have to pull the trigger? So that difficulty is going back yeah. to a place in time where I wasn't present, and I have to collect all this information. And ultimately, in that situation, in the competency, when I say this person is competent to stand trial, mm-hmm. I get to make that decision. The judge doesn't have to accept it, but legally, under under rules of law and the authority, you know, in, in licensure and stuff like that, that's my obligation. I have to say, yes, at this time the person is competent or they're not competent because of X, Y, and Z. And most states have four or five different things I have to be able to defend and say, yes, they can do this, yes, they can do this, yes, they can do this, yes, they can do that. And if one of those is not there, then I cannot say they're competent. So they're not competent because they have this lack of specific skill. And then we move forward. And sometimes at that point, maybe the patient's medication is, is in, and so he's able to function now. And that patient's client at that point has the right to ask the judge, look, Your Honor, you guys made me take this medication so I could come to trial. I understand that if I stop taking my medication, I cannot contribute to my side any longer. I've already given them my story and my perspective. I do not like the medication because of this reason or that reason or side effects or whatever it is. They can then ask the judge to allow them to stop taking their medication. And the judge, when they do that, they say, yes, but... If we do that, we are proceeding without you being able to contribute any further. Are you fully aware of that? Do you agree with that? Okay. So they're making that while they're competent. They're making those decisions right then. And they can stop taking their medication. And sometimes, you know, the medication has residual effects, and they may make it through the the trial before they they lose some of the perspective and some other things. Mm -hmm. But they have that right in America to ask. Now, sometimes it just says no. I want to make sure you are consciously aware and are culpable throughout this whole hearing. So, and and that's the judge's ruling and decision. Now, the insanity or going back to that person, you know, who's saying that uh, uh, something was causing them to do this behavior at that time, 
that is the judge's decision. I just collect all my data. I collect all these things, and, okay, I know from experience these are the things the judge is going to want to know. This is what we're going to want to know. We're going to want to know, is there a history? Did he go? And did he really plan this stuff out? Was there a nice, you know, track record, maybe a paper trail, or maybe he's got a trail with four or five different people that he talked with at specific times, and they plan this stuff out. At the same time, I may pull up their their therapist or their psychiatrist and say, man, his ideation was crazy, and we put him on this antipsychotic, and, and he had no contact with reality here, and he didn't know that it, you know, that, that you could eat oranges without having to boil them for 45 minutes and, you know, just crazy. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've seen some really bizarre stuff. Yeah, so, I bet you um, have. <laughs> so you but, go yeah, through this whole process. Yeah. Yep. But and, I love we, that you're sharing this. Uh-huh. I love that we're talking about this. Right. Because yeah, it's confusing. What you just did in the few minutes that it took to explain this probably is one of the most important dialogues that I think we have had to date on the sound bites that are out there. Because oh, you see, you, you took such beauty and precision to go through this, right? And yet, no one seems to want to take the time to really look at the precision that it takes to understand a statement like, look, Mental health is to blame for that. So that leads me to this next piece because okay. you all at mainstream mental, you look. So here, here's here's why I'm so glad you did it, because you've identified an approach that you know to address school, school mass shootings, threat concerns. You know, they, they kind of all go right. together, so to speak. Right. But you've come up with an approach, and I I believe it's a controversial approach. It, it is controversial. But it has its merits. And I want to talk about that. So let's talk about what you all are referencing as a mental health warrant. Because from a common sense perspective, I'm a common sense kind of kind of girl. Yeah. You're hanging out with a bunch of people and you got somebody in your group. And, you know, over a one month period, you listen to your person in the group. Talk about, wow, how they wish they had a gun. Maybe they're going to go buy a gun. But, you know, that's not really the issue. They're really right. thinking what it would feel like to really be a shooter, right? And you're hearing this. And there's nothing really you can do. Very well, you can call the police. Do. And you the police can the come police. out and interview that's everybody right. else. That's and they right. can interview that person. And that's everything right. that that person just said is completely yep. within their legal rights. So That's what happens right. is the police officer writes a nice little report. I talked to these people. They all confirmed. He confirmed. Blah, blah, blah. Nothing done here. And it goes into a nice little file in the police station. That's, That's where right. it sits. They've, made, they've got, a, they got a police report. But that's not what okay. you all are talking about. <laughs> right. That's not what I, But I'm also not talking about this whole red flag thing because yeah. I, I, I'm an avid outdoorsman. My kids, my wife. Myself, all my family members have all been hunters and fishers. I don't want somebody to be able to say, I don't like that idea you have, so I'm giving you a red flag and they're going to come take your weapon. I want due process. I want there to be a process where somebody wants to make an accusation, and in a court of law they have to prove that accusation as opposed to a red flag thing where you can't prove a negative. You know, it's just like any of our politicians. You get labeled a bigot. You can't prove you're not a bigot. You know, so prove that I am a bigot 
and and in the meantime, you have to treat me as if I'm innocent so you can prove it, just like our penal system. But in politics, is a whole other thing. But I'm worried that they're going to take that attitude and try and pull it into this new court system or whatever they're trying to do with the red flag. Yeah, and we've already seen the abuse of this in psychology, by the way. You know, let's just take a moment and talk about this. Uh, Look, we don't need a blockbuster Hollywood movie to highlight the fact, and and this has been primarily women. I'm not saying men have, have, have not had this happen, but primarily women. And so what we've seen is a blockbuster movie comes out, and now this true story is being told of how some family member didn't like their sister And all of a sudden, back in the day, I like to say, they built a case that their sister was mentally unfit. Long story short, that sister ends up in what was known as an asylum, right, for a gazillion years and goes unnoticed because of what somebody says. So I don't want to go back there because I look. My mother was put in a box about who she was and was given medication, and then she committed suicide because of something that was said. So we don't want to go there. Due process is important. In your proposal, you include that, though. Right, right. And I I can tell you, you know, we we have that in place, that due process. Whenever today, almost every state has something that if somebody is a threat to themselves or others, and, and in my state, Texas, it says imminent threat to self or others. Now, mm-hmm. that imminent is debatable being what, whatever judge I get that day. It could be That's right. I've had one mm-hmm. judge say, so in the next 24 hours, they're going to kill themselves or kill somebody else. Right. Right. And, and we have to prove that. Now, I've had other judges who go, so in the next two weeks, between today and two weeks from today, they're going to either kill themselves or kill somebody else. That, the two different judges have their different parameters. And, and that's, that's okay because, you know, it's spelled out as imminent. How that judge perceives that, that's what you have to go with. And we know the judges, so we learn and we know, okay, this guy, we got to have a little different perspective. Um, but my patients that have allowed themselves to be committed were patients who were, they did the convincing themselves. I didn't have to prove anything. I mean, they, you just ask them the right questions, and they tell you. And, uh, and part of that's their reality testing and, and their belief that, that, that the judges are not very smart and, you know, things like that. So they just they give everything away. They, they're not very good clients from a defense attorney's standpoint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of, <laughs> kind of bizarre. Just, just, and, just saying. Just saying right there. Exactly. Um, yeah. But this, let's go to short break, and when we come back, let's talk okay. about this because you really look. You've looked at this from multiple lenses. That's what I love about this conversation because I, you know, when I heard about what you were doing, you know, I was very skeptical because of co- of course of my own past and my own history with my mom. But then I thought about this a little bit, and then what I thought about is the following. I said, you know what it would take for the average person to go to the police on a friend of theirs in a group that's talking this smack about stuff, right? First of all, the first thing they think about is, I'm not doing that. I'm going to get killed. So that wouldn't happen. So then if they don't do that, what is left? 
what is left as a safeguard for not just yourself, but what preventative states can we enact short of a minority report tactic, but what can we do that perhaps could save lives? That's why Dr. Hubert's here. And what we're going to talk about when we come back, I'm going to give you lots of information about who they are, you know, what we're talking about today in the show, why this is important, and get you engaged. Because if you go to mainstreammentalhealth.org, one, you're going to find a lot of information. Two, you're going to be able to listen to the podcast that uh, uh, really fun stuff, but educational, informative. And three, you will probably get a perspective on the rhetoric and dialogue that's being put out in there because it is our responsibility to get educated. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the solution. Get ready. Get ready. We're going to talk about it. We'll be right back. Are you ready to branch out? Take a leap of faith. Then tune in to Get Rooted Radio with Erica Gifford-Mills on TransformationTalkRadio.com every second and fourth Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific to equip, empower, and enlighten yourself. Erica will energize and excite you to power up your passionate dream that sets your soul on fire. So get fearlessly ready and get powerfully rooted in your yes to live it up, love it up, and let it go to ignite the life you deserve. Visit GetRootedRadio.com and tune in. This is Debbie Pokornik with a moment for standing in your power. Self-control begins with noticing how different feelings present themselves in your body. When you're feeling sensitive, for example, your chin might quiver, tears might well up in your eyes, and your voice might catch in your throat. Anger, on the other hand, might appear as tension in your jaw, back, or arms, along with clenched fists, heat in the upper torso, scowling, and a strong desire to yell. (laughs) The more aware you become of your body cues, the easier it will be to recognize when you're on the road to disaster. Choose the emotions that cause you problems, then start noticing and logging the body cues that come with them. For information and to work with Debbie, visit EmpoweringNRG.com. That's EmpoweringNRG.com. Has your buzz for life buzzed off? Feeling ignored, invisible, and wondering if this is really all there is? The years go by faster as we gain momentum. You're halfway there. Are you gathering speed or puttering out? Hit your stride for the liberating half of life. Comfortable in your skin? You can do better than that. Tune in to Discovering You Again Radio every fourth Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific as host Susan Axelrod encourages listeners to decide what they want, get inspired to action, and face challenges head on. Host Susan Axelrod pulls no punches, encouraging you to grab the brass ring and soar. For more information about Susan, go to www.whatwillyourlegacybe.com. 
Conscious Confidence Radio, a timeless wisdom with Sarah Main. Tune in each month on Transformation Talk Radio and join Sarah on an adventurous journey to the deeper level of meaning to move beyond today's world of constant change, confusion, and uncertainty beyond the shadow of fear. This hit show explores key concepts such as confidence, values, and attitude in a dynamic way. To learn more about Sarah and her work, visit sarahmain.com. Oh my gosh, I'm getting my groove on, Benny. Good. I've got my groove on. Tump day, and you that's should. the Four Seasons, yeah? Uh, yes, it is. The Four Tops. Yes, it is. Four oh, tops. Four Tops, right. What same did I difference. say? Same difference. The Four Seasons. That's same oh thing. my gosh. We what know what I you doing? meant. I'm doing, because you know what my de- deal is? I'm really stuck on the Frankie Valley song, mm. Come on, Marianne, because I'm trying to send a little love to Marianne Williamson here. Mm-hmm. So I'm really stuck on that. Like I started to do a little meme with that song and Marianne Williamson and my friend says, oh, Marianne will not think that's funny. So I stopped. Uh, anyway, here we go. We're t- mainstream mental health. Go ahead and take a look, everybody. Mainstreammentalhealth.org. Uh, um, look, Dr. John Huber is joining me here today. And, you know, not only is this an organization which really brings a level of truth to the conversation, but it brings information. Also, Dr. Huber has a podcast, and you can go take a look at the podcast here because uh, he's doing something that, you, you know, it's interesting. Up until if, about two months ago, there was the Dr. Pat show, and then I decided to do a different kind of show. That's what Dr. Huber has been doing. Mainstream Mental Health Radio, it takes a look at today's headlines uh, as it pertains to psychology. But not only is it going to give you insight and advice, it's going to talk about some of the things that snatched right from not just the headlines, but from what goes on in the hearts and the souls of moms, perhaps, about their children that are obsessing over smartphones. Or maybe we're looking at anxiety that we have. You know, what does it mean to have anxiety that just doesn't go away? What happens when you drink and then you have more anxiety afterwards? All of these things, right? And, you know, this is what Dr. Huber has taken on. And the reason that this is so important is we've got to get past the untruth about mental health. And mental health, mental illness, these are not the same things. But we have to get into a dialogue, right? Uh, And so part of this conversation is you sometimes talk about things that are not very popular, but they have to be talked about. And I want to thank you, Dr. Huber, for doing that. Thank you. Well, you know, and part of part of my training is as a forensic psychologist. So when I go in and I test, testify as an expert witness or I help a, an attorney or a judge on a case, I have to go in there in this professional capacity and I have to make statements that I can defend based on data and statistics and numbers. It's not, well, you know, I don't really like the oppression of these people, so I'm going to stand up for them. That's not what I'm getting paid for. I'm getting paid to give them actual research and data to make an informed decision and we step away from that emotionality because we make a lot of mistakes because our gut tells us things, not what the actual data tells us. And, you know, I, I have peers, other psychologists who, you know, oh, how could you say that? And I go, well, yeah. I, I have to. I mean, it's my reputation as a mm-hmm. forensic psychologist. It's my responsibility to the court system and to my, my clients. 
I have to give the best, most factual data, and it's not always good for my clients. I mean, it's not. And the attorneys I work for know that, and every one of them that that works with me on a regular basis says, look, give them the data. I can deal with facts. I can handle that. I can take that information and use it, even good information or bad information. But if somebody comes in and gives me this touchy-feely thing, my case drops apart because it's Nobody believes anything else from any other of the experts. Yeah. yeah. So my my radio show is just like that. I'll go in there and I'll talk <laughs> about facts, and it's not always that lovey, you know, huggy, touchy feely kind of a uh, perspective you might think from a, a therapist or a psychologist you would get. I have to do it, and and you know, I'm not just a clinical psychologist. I'm a clinical forensic psychologist. So I, I have to be responsible across the board with that. Yeah. Uh, and you, there's a, a, a new set of due diligence, let's call it, that you're subjected to, right, because yes. of the nature of what you do. Uh, and you're right. There is a fundamental difference, if not a vast difference, between a forensic uh, clinical for, a forensic psychologist and a clinical psychologist in so many ways. Um, right. But yet at the same time, it's a very refreshing level of exactness that you have to bring to the table for all of us that actually cannot make sense of what's happening in the world today. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and I've, I've faced opposing attorneys who have me up on stand and they said, they would ask me questions. Well, personally, does this, you know, affect your, 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 your perspective of this person? And right. they sit there and ask me all these personal questions. And it never fails. I had I was in federal court. They went on that for two days. And the second day, about four o'clock, I said, "You know, I think you're asking the questions wrong." Uh-huh. I'm not an attorney, but and the judge just starts grinning because he saw him doing it too. And he goes, well, "What do you mean?" I go, "You keep asking me personally. I'm here in a professional capacity. My reports stand. Nothing you've asked me in the last two days would affect how that report is written. And you know, it, it, it's I have to follow." The design of the test material, the design of the report, the design of things like the hair psychopathy checklist, I have to follow the rules, whether personally I would do things differently or not. And at that point, the attorney looked at me, looked at the judge, folded his briefcase and said, no more questions, Your Honor, and he lost. So, mm. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's not that my, my testimony was anything unusual or superior, but he spent two days talking about me personally with my kids, what I do X, Y, and Z. I go, well, you know, you're asking me a personal question. Well, are you going to answer the question or not? So I started answering. (laughs) And the judge kept grinning at me like, okay, you caught him. You know what he's doing. But he didn't catch himself. And uh, it's minute, you know, the (laughs) minutiae. But he was asking the wrong question. It is. And, you know, here's what I here's what I love about what we're going to talk about now is we're not even asking questions much. This is really a a mystery to to me. And I'm making a generalization, which I I don't like to do. But what do I mean by we're not asking questions? You know, it was really interesting. I saw I caught a soundbite from somebody interviewing Better O'Rourke the other day. And for the first time, I sort of looked up at, at this candidate. And he basically said to the press what I've been dying to say to them for like a year. And he said something like, 
WTF? You know the answer. Why do you keep asking stupid questions? Now, for some people, that probably wasn't a stupid question. But there is a question that is out there. How do we stop this? How do we stop this? See, and that's really what I want to talk with you about. Because we've got to be looking at the how, right? I think there are going to be a lot of people here, Dr. Huber, that people that are going to try to figure out the why. You know, why did this one do it? But I really want to know what you all have been thinking about to answer the question, how might we stop this? Or maybe not stop, but how might we prevent something from happening like the shootings we've seen? Well, you know, it's interesting. I talk with my, my clients all the time about they get focused on the why, 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 why yeah. instead of the what, 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 what. And what do mm-hmm. I mean by that? Well, what are we doing and what do we need to do different to change this? You know, then we can deal with the whys later. But if you don't deal with the what, we're going to be talking about this next year, the same time, the same way. And one of the things, and we went back to that police report that gets filed in that, in that file at the police station. That's not what should be happening with that file. That mm-hmm. report should go across a lower-level judge to look at and say, this warrants some more investigation. Write a warrant for that detective to go back and say, okay, he said he's going to shoot someplace up. Do me a favor. Here's a warrant. Go look for guns in the house and see if it's possible. Don't be a psychologist. Be a detective. Be a police officer. Go do your job. Now you got a warrant to do it. Okay, bring that information back to the judge. And now the judge can look at it. Okay, not only is this person saying these things, but they have the means to do it. Now that's when they need to call somebody like me, a forensic psychologist, who can do risk assessments and using actuarially based uh, research tools that give me percentage uh, uh, chance that they're going to offend in the next 12 months versus three years, things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Florida uses the VRAG and the SORAG, Violence Risk Assessment Guide, and the Sexual Offenders Violence Risk Assessment Guide. And um, they're not perfect. We don't have a perfect tool, but they're better than everything else we've got. Okay. And uh, those are are tools that can give an actuarial-based number based on how they score it says, okay, in the next 12 months, there's a 30% chance that they'll, that they'll offend or, or be violent, or there's a 90% chance. And they, cut, they have a cutoff level. Each state should have to say, if, if you say more than a 35% chance, then we have to do something. You know, the judge has to do something, whether it's force them to do therapy, force their parents to, to buy it. If you want to keep your guns, you have to have a safe within two weeks, and it's got to be lockable, and your kids can't have the access code. You know, I mean, it could be that simple. We're not talking about taking everybody and throwing them in a mental health facility and locking the key away. Mm-hmm. And I'm that's not, what, part of where that due mm-hmm. process is there. Let's, mm-hmm. let's have some opportunity to make some changes before we get to that point. Otherwise, that file, that report just goes in that file, and it sits there and collects that. So what is that? What do you believe? Uh, and, and I want to cover this in the short time we have left. Okay. What, what is the main objection? What are you hearing from people when you pass this idea? And, you, you know, what, what are people saying? Well, everybody, you know, says, oh, that violates 
the, the Constitution. Well, when I take a patient, we talked about it earlier, and say that they're a threat to themselves or others, and we civilly commit them against their will, we're violating the Constitution. Yeah. We're taking away yeah. their freedom. But yeah. there's due process involved. I don't want this to be something like the Red Scare, where they can just point a finger, and all of a sudden the person's stripped of every you know means that they have to, to hunt and fish and drive their cars and everything else. You know, I, There has to be due process involved. So this, right now, at this point, you've already seen a judge twice. Uh, a police officers investigated it twice. They, they did a superficial one, then a more intense. Then a psychologist has come in, done a background check, looked history. We know things about, about these perpetrators. Seventy-nine percent of them are single. Almost every one of them has an absentee parent. That's pretty intense, especially when you start thinking about of the of the, the 30 or so that do this every year, according to the FBI statistics, that 62% have a mental health disorder, you add that on top of an absentee parent that creates this ideal that, you know, dad's in the next room, but he doesn't even say hi to me when I pass him in the hallway. I must be evil. I must be bad. Mm. And you add that to that mental health issue, and it is magnified geometrically. And, you know, it, it's very important. So what we need to see then is, that investigation, including that information. And, uh, you know, so the judge can say, you know, parents need to be in therapy. They need to learn how to be better parents. Let's do this. Let's not just target the kid. Let's make the environment much more rich and rewarding for this kid so they're less likely to offend like that in the first place. Mm. Uh, yeah, I want to ask you this question, uh, because something you just said sparked an area that I'm very involved with. So there's okay. a report that comes out, uh, and, and let me just say every year, but it's more like every other year, because it takes them two years to gather data, right? And mm -hmm. it's exactly. an interesting report because of the work that I do with women. Uh, and it's considered the report that says the deadliest states in the United States for women murdered by men, right? right. That's actually like a report. Right. And and so in this report, right, in itself, you look at it and you go, oh, right. But in this last report, one of the things that came out in headlines was interesting. I keep track of it, so I already know this. But for the 21st year in a row, South Carolina, where my mama, my mama, my stepmama was down there, was born there. So I, I, I kind of watched that a little bit. For the 21st year in a row, they made the top 10 of, of this statistic. Wow. And I think, I know, uh, and when you look at the list, you, you should check into this. You should go out of your mind if you looked at this. And I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, how could you be, right? So I sent a message to the senators and the people over there in SC, and, and, and I looked at it. And then I looked at the number one state, Alaska. And I thought to myself, if they're these top 10, I call them the dirty dozen, the 12, right? Yeah. You look at them, right? Let's just be clear. Yeah. If it were a one-time event, right? Because you're a forensic clinical psychologist, right? Yeah. So we're, we're kind of trained to look at patterns in a way, so to speak, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Right. We're, we're a little trained. So we can't help ourselves. That's right. 21 surveys in a row, South Carolina in the top 10. 
So does a light of, of men murdering women, right? So does a light bulb go on to say, not about the why, because I don't know that we'll get to the why. We could probably study the why till we're green. You know, so there's a why answer for Alaska, by the way. But shouldn't we be looking at the what in the same way you're looking at the what exactly. now here? Exactly. Yeah. And it's important to know, too, because what they're kind of doing now is the same thing. You know, they're throwing out, well, let's make this law. Well, the problem is the law is already there. If, if, if people would follow the law, criminals would follow the law. The fact that it says thou shalt not kill, you know, it's homicide. We're going to take you to jail for the rest of your life would be enough. They're not going to follow the law. The only thing it's going to do is that retain, restraining order. Ask any woman how effective that is when the husband kicks in the door. I have this restraining order. You can't come here. Stop. Mm -hmm. it, it's way past that. So the what is very important. And, and I think that when we focus on, let's say, one particular thing, let's just say we focus on one particular thing, is okay. there a benefit to this? Let me ask you from your perspective. Is there a benefit? I know that sometimes if we get way too far out there and create a wide, you know, a panoramic view of something, it's very hard for us to get anything done about it. But what you're specifically talking about really narrows the field to say, okay, there's this one thing we can do. There's this one thing we can do. Well, and um, this one thing, I, I, I gathered this, you know, mm -hmm. over years talking with attorneys and district attorneys and judges, and the judges are like, well, here's what we need to do. We have to protect due process. So have this person go in front of a judge multiple times before anything happens, you know. Mm -hmm. But the, the judge knows the client then. They know that person. There's a history, how they behave and respond. And we've got data. We've got a background information. We've got a mental health report. We've got all these things now that tells us which individuals we really need to be focused on. I mean, if you've got mm -hmm. somebody who is borderline intellectually functioning, they're less likely to be able to pull off any of this stuff, no matter what they say. Then you have somebody who has emotional disturbance, and they have 130 IQ, and they have the wherewithal, they have the means, and they have the cognitive capacity to plan and set this all up. That's the person that needs to be focused on, mm -hmm. and the judge knows them by the time it gets to that point. Yeah. Uh, you know, we make these broad brush statements, as I think you hear, right? I mean, we hear Absolutely. statements about uh, cities that I grew up around, you know, Newark. You know, we hear these, oh, horrible place, violent, right? We actually have statistics. What I find is yeah. interesting is if we just look at one set of information it gives us one perspective or one picture right <laughs> everybody's looking at the manifesto right but that's right. one slice of the pie right it, i want to it, ask it is i i do yeah. paint by numbers and i i, I have to <laughs> add all the colors i have to do yeah. go through one through 15 and sometimes at three i already know what i'm looking at but other times i have to go to 15 yeah. you know and, and that's, that's really the best analogy I have for what I do. I'm going painting by numbers, and I'm filling in the little spots, and then I get the picture. And it's mm -hmm. the big, broad picture. It's not that specific thing. And uh, it, it keeps me from getting tunnel vision. And that's yeah. 
It's yeah. so easy in politics, in the media, to do that because you get reaction, you get response. And yeah. both politicians and media love it. And I just got an instant text uh, coming into the show question. Here's it. I love our listeners. I swear we got the best listeners on the planet. Awesome. Uh, yeah, thank you, Dr. Pat. You mentioned the deadliest states. Question for you: Are the same states are the same? Okay, are the same states deadliest for everybody, or are they just deadly for women? Here's the short answer because we got to run, and I'll, I'll post the report. In almost all of the states that are deadliest for women, they also made the top tier of the like uh, most violent places in America. So almost all of them. There are a few exceptions, and I always like to look at the exceptions because it points to, as Dr. Huber would say, a different pattern. So sure. in most cases where you have deadliest for women and then a crime rate, one can make an assessment. But in a couple of outliers where the crime rate is not the worst in the world, but is in the top 10 deadliest for women, there's something to look at. And Kentucky is right in the gate for that. Uh, so to answer your question, I don't have this all memorized, just telling you, but I will say this, if you look at the top 10 of these, I'm pretty sure if I were to remember correctly of the top 10, uh, they are also on the deadliest for women, except for Kentucky. And yes, I will say this last thing. Alaska is like number one for it all. And don't ask me why, Dr. Uber, you're going to have to come back. We'll have to talk about that. <laughs> well, I have some ideas why. <laughs> <laughs> that is what you call a cliffhanger. And I hope you will come back so we can talk about this. Um, thank you so much. I want to ask you one last question. Please give out your website. And also, what's your personal message? What would you like to leave us with today? My personal message is don't be afraid to ask and realize the important questions you're seeing in the media and politics on the radio are the questions that aren't being asked. So you've got to ask the right one. That's the, that's the personal message I want to leave. And if you want to follow me, go to MainstreamMentalHealth.org, or you can get to that same website by going to DrPsycho.org. That's D-R-P-S-Y-C-H-O.org. Oh, and for those of you out there that just text me this last question, what is the, what are the safest states in America? I will also post that report. It comes in a Minnesota's at the top, Vermont is second, Maine is third, Utah, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Iowa, Hawaii, and Massachusetts. Just saying everybody. Thank you, Dr. Huber. Thank you very much. Thank you for this. Thank you, Dr. Pat. All right, everybody. Uh, yep, we will pick up the conversation with Dr. Yu and we'll talk about these reports in another show. Thank you. We'll see you next time. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.